Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the J. Berg Wilk Learning Series for 2017-2018. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. about my father, I ask myself, first of all, what would I like to tell you and what would you like to hear? And I suppose what I, what I really would like to say is that when you come to know my father through his writings or if you knew him in person, you really enter a different world. He was different from other Jewish thinkers, from other rabbis. It was quite unique. What do I mean by different? He thought differently. He asked different questions. You would come to him with a question, with a problem, and he would talk with you and turn it around and make you think more deeply. He wasn't interested in answering questions. He was interested in problems that are complex, that sometimes don't have a solution, and certainly not an easy one. Once I remember going to him when I was one day. So I was doing my homework, and somehow a thought came to me, which was, I have a life. It's mine. I can do anything. I can study anything. I can travel. I'm not just the child of my parents. And I was so thrilled with that idea that I immediately went to tell my father with great enthusiasm. And he listened, and he paused, and then he said, yes. But what will you do with it? And that was something that was very, very striking about him. He always came back with a deeper question, and he always asked about personal responsibility. Yes, you have a life. But life, he said, is a mandate. Life is a gift on the one hand, but it's also an obligation. What will you do with your life, with this extraordinary life you've been given? So what do I mean when I say that with my father you enter a different world? I think if you look simply at the titles of his books, you realize this is different. A book that's called God in Search of a Man. Not that we are in search of God, but that God is in search of us. He turns the question around. What does he mean by that? Why does he do that? And what's implied? He says that God needs us. He says that we human beings are an object of divine concern. I want to tell you that when he says that, it emphasizes the preciousness of human life it makes us pause and take ourselves very seriously and one another very seriously. And I want to tell you also that he was like that as a person, as a father, and the way he treated other people, and the effort that he made to know people, to be generous, to be kind, when I was a child and we would go to the store to buy something, sometimes the person at the other side of the counter might be grumpy. My father never responded with grumpiness, which I think a lot of us sometimes would. He tried to change the person's mood, tried to bring a smile. I met a couple of people this evening who knew one of my father's friends, Reverend William Sloan Coffin who had been a chaplain at Yale University. And he was a good friend of my father's. And one time, Bill Coffin, who had a big personality and was very vibrant, 
In New York, he parked in the wrong place. <laughs> and the car was towed. And my father went with Bill to the, what do you call it, the pound for you? <laughs> All the cars are impounded. And when they arrived, the, the guard, the policeman, I suppose, was not very friendly. It was actually rather angry. But Bill was given the key, and he went off to look for the car. And when he came back, he said that my father, in talking to this guard, had transformed him. And he was laughing and joking and happy. And that, I think, was something my father had a special gift for doing. He knew how to reach people inside. And I would say also that the people who, people who read my father's work often write to me. And they tell me how much it means to them, a certain book or an idea. And I think it's partly because when you read my father, you feel as though he's reading you, too. There's a kind of intimacy that he creates. And the truth is, he was a person capable of profound intimacy. Now, let me say something about who he was, his background. Some of you may know he was born in 1907 to a Hasidic family in Poland. My father came from a long line of very distinguished Hasidic rebbies, especially Hasidic rebbies who were known for their ability to speak to people, to speak deeply to people. You know, there were some Hasidic rebbies who wrote very sophisticated books, and there were some who were who were people who welcomed, welcomed a soul. So my father, my father's father, first of all, was very young when his father died, and his mother took him to live with her parents. My grandmother's father was a Rebbe, great distinction, and he lived in very lovely surroundings, splendor. But my father's father, my grandfather, chose to live in the most impoverished neighborhood in Warsaw, to be a rabbi to the poorest Jews. Unfortunately, my father was nine years old when his father died in the influenza epidemic. And that was a very painful thing for my father. But as he grew older, and everybody, by the way, recognized that he was brilliant, that he was a genius, uh, and when he was little, they would lift him up and put him on a table, and he would deliver learned lectures. And everyone was amazed. But he decided when he was 20 that he wanted to study the university. And so he went to the University of Berlin. He said, Berlin in those days felt like the intellectual center of the universe. My father studied at the two rabbinical seminaries that were also in Berlin at the time. But I just have to tell you that my father was already ordained a rabbi in Warsaw before he left by Menachem Zemba, who's a very distinguished rabbi, Orthodox rabbi. But he came to Berlin, and he studied for his doctorate at the university. And at the same time, he also wanted to study at the two rabbinical seminaries, one Orthodox and one Reform. They were actually located on the same street just a few blocks apart. And he, my father was the only one who went to both. And by the way, you know what the name of the street was? Artillery Street. <laughs> but my father was like that. He wanted to understand how people think. People who don't think the way he thinks, he wanted to know how they think. He wanted to know how the reform movement read texts and how the orthodox. And so he felt at home in both. And that was something special about him, his open-mindedness. My father finished his PhD dissertation, which was written about the prophets in December of 1932. He took his oral exams in February of 1933. The professors wrote that he seemed nervous. Imagine a Jew in Berlin in 1933. Of course you feel nervous. He tried very hard. The dissertation had to be published, and nobody would publish it in Germany, a book by a Jew. Finally, it was arranged in Poland. And he tried very hard to get out of Germany, and it was very difficult. He met Martin Buber in 1936, and Buber was moving to Palestine and invited my father to come to Frankfurt and replace him at the Adult Jewish Education Center, the Jüdisches Lehrhaus in Frankfurt. So my father lived there, and then in October of 38, my father, along with the other Polish Jews, 
My father was arrested and deported. I'm sure you know the story that led up to Kristallnacht. He came to the United States in March of 1940 thanks to a visa that was obtained for him by the Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati, the Reform Rabbinical School. He taught there for five years for the war. He tried desperately to save his mother and his sisters and his family and his friends unsuccessfully. At the end of the war, he met my mother. They moved to New York. My father became a professor at the Jewish Theological Seminary. And they married, they had a baby, just one, me. <laughs> After me, that, no. <laughs> just, <laughs> My mother was a pianist, and my mother wanted to play the piano for hours and hours. Every day she loved that. And my father wanted to read and study and write, and so they were well matched. <laughs> they left each other alone. <laughs> but what I really want to say with this introduction, and my father taught at the seminary until he died in December of 1972. He was 65. What I really want to say, first of all, is that my father experienced three of the major centers of Jewish life of the 20th century, Eastern Europe, German Judaism, and America. Those are really the three most important. And what he did was to bring a bit of each together. He brought his sensibilities from the Hasidic piety and the German way of thinking philosophically and historically, and he came to America, and he tried to give it to us as American Jews, as modern people. He wrote in four languages, beautiful books in Hebrew, Yiddish, German, and English, which is extraordinary. But he also brought something else, which was his unique, critical way of thinking. Critical, by that I mean not negative critical, but the effort to go more deeply. So for example, when he wrote a book, Torah Minashamayim, a Hebrew book in three volumes about rabbinic thought, he wanted to show us that the rabbis of the Talmud weren't always in agreement, they were in conflict. Not only were they in conflict, but he traces two different ways of thinking, even about revelation itself. What was revelation for Jews at Mount Sinai? Was it words of Torah? Or was it an experience of God? Or was it somehow both? And what are the implications of thinking one way or the other, or bringing the two together somehow? My father felt that, yes, we have halakha, Jewish law, but we also have agadah. What's agadah? Not just simple stories, as many people dismiss it. No, it's about theology. The rabbis are worried about God and how we understand God, and how we perceive God. What does this mean? My father points to passages in the Talmud that were neglected by other scholars. Nobody thought about it. You know, in a yeshiva, if you're reading, you're studying Talmud, you come to a, a, an agadic passage, a story or a saying, you skip over it and get to the legal part. No, my father said, that's a rich source of Jewish theology. Let me give you an example. When on, uh, on the holiday of, uh, of Sukkot, at the end of Sukkot, when we have the Hoshanas, when we walk around and hope for redemption and we say that God should redeem us, God should redeem us, and it becomes a chant. But in the Talmud it also says, not only Ana Hashem Hoshiana, please God redeem us, Another way of reading the same words is ani vaho hoshiana. What does that mean? It means I and God, we and God should be redeemed. We and God should be, does God need redemption? Yes, God needs redemption. How could God need redemption? This is a central issue my father explores. First in the Torah, because God comes with us in the wilderness, into exile. God is with us. God is suffering with us, because God cares about human beings. You know there's an old Protestant idea that in the Old Testament, God is a God of wrath. 
and anger. And in the New Testament, God is a God of love. You've probably heard that. My father says, no, that's mistaken. In the Torah, in the Hebrew Bible, God responds to human beings. Yes, when the children of Israel sin, God is upset. And when they repent, God is forgiven. What does this mean? It means that God has an inner life. God has a subjectivity. God is not the way the philosophers in Greece describe God. Aristotle said God is the unmoved mover. No, my father says. If you look at the Bible, do you see the word omnipotent? Omniscient? Doesn't appear in the Bible. The Bible has a different understanding of God. God having emotions, subjectivity, and responding to us. What my father calls divine pathos, which comes from an old rabbinic idea, sorach gavoha. Sorach gavoha, that there is a divine need, that God needs us and responds to us. So my father says, that's the fundamental teaching of Judaism. God needs us, and when I do good for someone, I bring strength to God. When I injure someone, I injure God, because God responds to us. And that, he says, is the central, key, important distinction of how we think as Jews about God. That is Jewish theology. I have to mention to you that um, I did some research some years ago about my father's relationship with Martin Luther King, and I noticed that Dr. King used very similar language. He also said that the God of the Bible is not the unmoved mover, but the most moved mover. God is moved by us. My father wrote on so many different topics and accomplished so much as a scholar, as a theologian, as a moral voice. But he wasn't only someone who wrote sophisticated works of theology or studies of medieval Jewish philosophy. He also was very concerned with what we as Jews today need. What do we need and what he could contribute? What is it to be a Jew? You know, when my father came to America, was a very popular idea to say that Judaism is a civilization. We as Jews created a Jewish civilization. We wrote a Torah, we formed an idea of being a community, an ethnic group, and we should celebrate that we're a civilization. My father writes, no, Judaism, he says, is the art of surpassing civilization. What does he mean by that? He says, the grand premise of religion is that we're able to surpass ourselves, go beyond ourselves, do more, more than we think we are. And I have to say that that resonates to me very much because when I was a child growing up, I had the privilege of meeting people whom I admired and respected so much, including Dr. King, and I thought, how extraordinary that a person could become a Martin Luther King. What does it say to us? We're capable as human beings of becoming such a person to surpass civilization. My father wants us to reorient ourselves, not to be self-satisfied, but to always push ourselves further. I would say that nowadays, <laughs> Nowadays, I look around, I read the New York Times, I have students, I see the world, and what I worry about is that we live today in an era of the entrepreneurial self. That is, people take their life as a project, and the project is to present oneself as being the best, to be physically fit, to be successful, to be at the top of whatever your field is, to make people look at, our, look at us and say, this is a model of success. 
as if our life is a project, and as if that is what it is to be a human being. The danger is, my father warned, that we think about ourselves and our lives in the wrong terms. We compare ourselves to animals. We talk about artificial intelligence. Rather than worrying about what makes us unique as human beings, and in my father's small book, Who is Man?, he talks about this. The image that we have of ourselves, of what it is to be a person, that affects our whole society. My father was living there in Germany from 1927 to 1938. What kind of an image did people have of what it is to be a human being? What image do we have in our society of a successful person? And we ask what role models we give our children. When I was a kid, my father would sometimes ask my friends, if you could go back in history, whom would you like to be? Who would you like to be? Who would you like to be? And the, my friends would say things like, I would like to be George Washington or Abraham Lincoln. And my father used to say, wouldn't you like to be Moses? Moshe Rabbeinu? I was very embarrassed in those moments, and my friends thought, where am I? Yeah, but what do we aspire to be, and who are our role models? You know, my father felt that sometimes we need to have a balance. He was critical of Jews who emphasized too much halakha, too much law, and those who don't have enough, who think, ah, let's just feel good. He used to say that we Jews are messengers who forgot the message. What's the message? My father felt, first and foremost, we have to worry as Jews about prayer. And I'll tell you something that I think is interesting. In 1936, my father was invited to have tea with Martin Buber at his home in Frankfurt. And he wrote about that experience in a letter to a friend. And he described it. He said there was a lively conversation. They were talking about what to teach adult Jewish education about prayer. And Buber was saying, we have to teach these adults the words of the prayer book. And my father said, no, we have to teach people how to pray. How to pray. My father was very critical of the synagogues in his day, which I know have changed dramatically in part thanks to him and his criticism, he found that synagogues were often very cold and lifeless, and people would sit back in their chair and let the rabbi and the cantor do the praying, kind of vicarious davening. He said, the synagogues are where prayer goes to die. What does it mean to pray? He said, first of all, prayer should be an act of listening, listening. He writes, prayer must never be a citadel for selfish concerns, but rather a place for deepening concern over other people's plight. Prayer, he said, is meaningless unless it is subversive. What does it mean to be subversive? You don't leave the synagogue patting yourself on the back saying, oh, what a good person I am, I went to the synagogue. No, you should feel upset with yourself. I have to do more, I have to try harder, I have to go more deeply. My father used to ask his rabbinical students, is gelatin kosher? Because you know if it comes from the hoof of an animal, it's not. But what if it's made in a laboratory out of chemicals? And the students would argue back and forth about it, then he would stop them and he would say, gentlemen, are nuclear weapons kosher? We forget sometimes because we're self-satisfied, my father felt. He used to say, we Jews, we live in Gaulus, in Galut, in exile. What does it mean to live in exile? He used to say, our timidity, our hesitance to take a stance on behalf of people who were oppressed, that's being in exile. Our unwillingness to stand up for others, that's exile. It's not only, he said, it is not only we who are in exile, it is exile that's within us. Now, he called for 
greater intensity of our piety, and greater commitment to halakha, sometimes people would telephone my parents' home, and they would tell my father, I read your book on the Sabbath. It means so much to me, and I want to start observing the Sabbath. I don't know what to do. And he would say, just kindle. Kindle the lights on Friday. He never gave people a formula. He never said, this is the one way to be Jewish. You have to do these things. He felt actually very strongly following the work of the Kotzka Rebbe, about whom he wrote a two-volume book in Yiddish. The Kotzka Rebbe said, the Judaism has to be authentic to who you are. Now, how can it be authentic to who you are? First of all, you have to know who you are before your Judaism can be expressed that way. The Kutzker said, you can't be Jewish the way other people are Jewish. That's not right. And my father writes in his book, Man is Not Alone, that to try to be Jewish like your grandparents, your great-grandparents, to follow other people, he said that's spiritual plagiarism. And he warned us against rigidity and bigotry. I love his definition of bigotry. He writes, frequently, faith and a lack of mercy enter a union out of which bigotry is born. The presumption that my faith, my motivation is pure and holy, while the faith of those who differ, even in my own community, is impure and unholy, no. And I wish that would be a motto for every, everybody, every religious person. But he says that Judaism can only become authentic to us if we know who we are, if we go into the depths of our inner lives. Judaism isn't about transcending the self or suppressing the self, but going more deeply. What does he mean? In his book, God in Search of Man, he opens by saying, that religion declined in the modern world, not because of science or because of philosophy, but because the religious message became insipid. Insipid. He goes on in that book to tell us that what we need to do is to cultivate our ability to be aware of God's presence. How do we do that? He talks about the importance of cultivating a sense of wonder, of awe, of radical amazement, amazement at the world, a sense of the miraculous. He used to ask the audience when he would give a lecture in the evening, did anybody see the miracle that just happened? And they didn't know what he meant. And he said, the sun has just set. Because one can discover God also in nature, he said and also in Torah, and also in other human beings. But we have to cultivate our inner lives to sense God's presence. It takes refinement and gentleness, sensitivity and empathy, but also the willingness to speak out and act on behalf of other people, because in so doing, we're speaking on behalf of God. If you take the words of the Kaddish, my father used to say, let God's name be magnified in this world. Let there be more of God in this world. How do we make that happen? Not just by reciting the Kaddish, but by making God's presence better known. He felt that the soul is ignored too often that we treat ourselves as if we're made in the likeness of a machine rather than in the likeness of God. He says, this is the most urgent task, to save the inner human being from utter oblivion. Now religion, he says, begins with the certainty that something is asked of us, that there are ends in need of us. So what do we do? He says, religion doesn't come to give us assurance, and it doesn't come to generate guilt or shame, but rather it begins with a sense of mystery, and then with the question, what do we do with the feeling for the mystery of living? What do we do with awe, with wonder, or with fear? 
And here my father argues that if you want to have ethics, ethics, ethical living as an individual or a society, what you need, first of all, is reverence. Reverence. Do we have reverence for one another, for nature, for God? He used to say that he would like his child, me, to revere her father, him. And he asked himself, what do I do to make myself worthy of my daughter's reverence? And I suppose that's a question we might ask in all our relationships. Above all, we have to avoid simplistic thinking and reductionism. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. I want to say a word about my father's work on the prophets. Can I talk for a few more minutes? Is that all right? Now, I want to tell you something. I had to go to a conference last year at Cambridge University in England. The conference was on the impact of World War I on biblical scholarship. And my topic was German biblical scholarship on the prophets. And I read what these people were writing from the 1890s to the 1920s. And you know, the Protestants in Germany almost compulsively had to denigrate the Hebrew Bible and even the prophets. They said the prophets suffered from ecstasy they would have fits of ecstasy and be writhing on the ground, and they would have pronouncements, losing consciousness. They didn't even know what they were saying. I was struck by that. Ernst Trelch was a very famous theologian. In 1915, in the middle of World War I, gave a famous lecture denouncing the prophets. He said, who were they? They were country bumpkins. They were from rural areas, and they show up in the city in an urban center where there's a king and an army and a state. And what do they say? You shouldn't make war. You should destroy your weapons. And Trelch said, what foolishness? You tell this to a king and an army? It's absurd. How are they going to defend themselves? And this is what comes when you have a, a country bumpkin doesn't know anything. Those are the prophets. That's the world in which my father wrote his book on the prophets. It starts in a very different way. He asks in his first chapter, what manner of man is the prophet? And what does he say? The prophet is a person of agony, whose life and soul are at stake in what he says. Why is he in agony? because he perceives the silent sigh of human anguish, and he gives it voice. He writes, God is raging in the prophet's words. Yes, my father says, we may all criticize injustices in our society, but we move on. But to the prophet, injustice has a cosmic proportion. He's indignant. He's outraged. And he says, isn't it out of proportion? Yes, there's injustice. We all know everywhere in every society there is always injustice. All right. But the prophets get so passionate about it. But you know, for my father, life and religious life has to be lived with passion. Yes, to us, inequality is un it's just unfair. It should be corrected. The prophets rage at injustice. They scream about it because they feel so fiercely. My father writes, God has thrust a burden upon the prophet's soul. He is bowed and stunned at man's fierce greed. Frightful is the agony of man. No human voice can convey its full terror, the agony. Prophecy is the voice that God has lent to the silent agony. Prophecy is the voice of the plundered poor to the profane riches of the world. The prophets are outraged 
not only at our sins, but our disavowal, the constant denial that we've done anything wrong. You know, if somebody murders someone, God forbid, we have laws. A person goes on trial, goes to prison. But when we make a war and we drop a bomb from an airplane way up high and innocent civilians are killed, that's war. The prophet Jeremiah writes, on your shirt is found the lifeblood of the guiltless poor. And yet in spite of these things, you say, I am innocent. Behold, I will bring you to judgment for saying, I have not sinned. We might ask ourselves, why such hysteria? Maybe they were ecstatic. Maybe they were irrational country bumpkins, unaware of what goes on in society. Is it really so terrible, we might ask ourselves? Is it really so terrible if there's some people in this richest country of the world who have no homes? If black women die in childbirth three times more often than white women? If children are hungry in this country, starving, sitting in school? Jeremiah says, they know no bounds in deeds of wickedness. They judge not with justice the cause of the fatherless, the rights of the needy. Shall I not punish them for these things, says the Lord? And shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? And my father asks us, if the prophet's outrage is to be called hysterical, what should we call the abysmal indifference that the prophets are describing? And he says in that book, some are guilty, but all are responsible. How does the voice of the prophet sound? My father was haunted by the war in Vietnam, haunted because he learned that the war had deteriorated from being something with a political goal into crimes against civilians, napalm being dropped on children, he used to say to pray and not speak out on Vietnam is blasphemy. He said, when I open the prayer book, I see before me images of children burning from napalm. What is being done in my name by my country is my responsibility. Let me turn to one other issue that was very important for my father. I want you to remember that my father had, on the one hand, a very broad life from Poland to Germany to America. On the other hand, in some ways, it was rather narrow. He was in his study. He was writing and reading. He taught at a seminary, so his colleagues and students were Jewish. And yet in 1963, my father was invited to Chicago to a special conference organized by the National Conference of Christians and Jews, a conference on religion and race. Two words, my father said, that should never be uttered together because they're diametrically opposed. Religion brings people together, race tears people apart. It was at that conference where my father first met Martin Luther King. My father opened his lecture that day by saying that at the first conference on religion and race, the main participants were Pharaoh and Moses. And Moses said, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should heed his voice and let Israel go? I will not. My father went on to say that racism is Satanism, Satanism, unmitigated evil. That God is either the father of all human beings or of no one. And to treat people as inferior because of the color of their skin is an eye disease. His speech was passionate. And you know, I don't know of any other speech or essay or writing by any other white person, clergy, theologian, politician from the 1960s who spoke out as forcefully as he did against racism. And I have to ask what fed his passion there was certainly his own experience of anti-Semitism in Poland and in Germany, 
But truly, the passion comes from the Bible, from the prophets, from being a Jew. When he met Dr. King, they came together, they bonded. They came from such different backgrounds, and yet they saw something in each other and heard something in their voices. They became very close and they worked together. Dr. King came with my father to talk to Jewish groups frequently. Both of them spoke out against racism, of course. They spoke out on behalf of Soviet Jews. They talked about Israel in support of the state of Israel. Civil rights was about religious faith. So my father in 1965 went to the March in Selma. Some of you saw the clip before. And when he came back from Selma, my father wrote in his diary, for many of us, the march from Selma to Montgomery was about protest and prayer. Legs are not lips, and walking is not kneeling, and yet our legs uttered songs. Even without words, our march was worship. I felt my legs were praying. I thought of my having walked with Hasidic Rebbe's on various occasions. I felt a sense of the holy in what I was doing. And he wrote a letter to Dr. King. He said, the day we marched together out of Selma was a day of sanctification. That day, I hope, will never be passed to me. That day will continue to be this day. And you hear that sentence and compare it to what he wrote about Mount Sinai in the Revelation. The day of giving the Torah can never become past. That day is this day, every day. My father felt that the leaders of our people, the Jewish people, don't understand the language of the soul. He said, a person goes to the synagogue, his mouth is sealed, his mind is blocked. How do we open his heart? We pray in the prayer book the words, the soul of every living thing praises your name. Shouldn't the soul of the Jew not know how to praise? Every Shabbat, multitudes of Jews gather in the synagogues, but they depart as they entered. The soul doesn't know how to pour itself out. There are those who come from afar, from the depths of alienation, with a vague yearning in their hearts. What should synagogues give to us? What should rabbis and ministers and priests? What about Jewish education? My father said, what we need are not textbooks, but text people. Text people. Poetry was very important to my father. I want to just conclude by telling you something about his fatherhood. When I was a little girl, I was sent to an Orthodox day school in New York called Ramaz. And they had, at the beginning of the year, a parent-teacher meeting. They have it in most schools. And so my parents went to the school, and the teacher explained that they were going to be teaching the children the words of the prayer book, of the um, afternoon prayer in the school. We were going to learn to, you know, how to say the after mincha. And my father, along with everything else, we would be learning uh, Chumash, Torah, and Hebrew with translation in Aramaic, and, and so on. My father said to the teachers, why don't you teach the children poetry? Poetry, why poetry? Because that's how you begin to pray, by understanding poetry, the Psalms. We begin to pray with Psalms. My father was very sensitive to language. He would come home at the end of the day from his office and he would say, I wrote a good sentence today. How we speak, what we say, the words we use. He read books about language, about metaphors. He taught himself English only at the age of 30, he began. 
He never used slang, certainly never vulgar language. Vulgarity was anathema to him, anathema. Once toward the end of my father's life, once I heard him say, okay. And I was so startled. <laughs> I wanted to tell you that my father was full of laughter. He had a great sense of humor. He loved Yiddish jokes, old Jewish jokes. He loved to laugh, and he had a big laugh. My parents were always studying, always reading, so they didn't have guests over very often. But when they did, it would be on Shabbat, Friday evening, and people would sit around the table, and there was a lot of humor. A lot of reminiscing, too, because my parents' friends were all European refugee scholars, and they would talk about their teachers. They would talk about that world and that life. When I grew up, I knew the names of all the great philosophers and, and writers and poets from Germany. I don't think anybody there read Moby Dick. For them, it was America. I felt, I felt a bit like a tourist. I always wanted to go to Howard Johnson. See what it would be like. <laughs> there were certain very European things. I noticed the way my father in the store would pay for something, how he would hold the money and pay for it. And once when I was a professor at Case Western Reserve University and I went to the Hillel and I saw an older man come in and I saw how he paid for his lunch and I knew he was a German Jew and he was. There were certain ways of behaving, a certain kind of refinement that you could see even in the smallest gestures. My father was never moody. He was never withdrawn. If he, he was rarely upset about anything except something major, like the Milai massacre, which horrified him in part because the massacre, the atrocity, was revealed by journalists. And he said, where were the chaplains? Why didn't they speak out? He used to say, you know, we have a, a mashkiach, a, um, a rabbinical supervision in the kosher butcher stores and the kosher restaurants in Israel, for example. And he used to say, we should also have a mashkiach in the banks, in the businesses. There are Jewish ethics about how you do business. He used to say that Israel, Israel which he loved very much, Israel still is in Galut. When Israel celebrates its Independence Day with planes and tanks and weapons, that's Galut, that's exile. When it overcomes that, it will come out of exile. We used to go to Israel together as a family and my father would go to lecture often. What concerned him was that a lot of Israeli young people didn't understand what it meant to be Jewish. They understood something about being Israeli, but what is it to be Jewish? That worried him. And he felt that that was perhaps something that we Jews of the diaspora could bring to Israel to explain, to celebrate. My daughter and her school had a group from Israel who came. And they went to the synagogue for the first time in Boston. And they're living in Israel. Now I must tell you one other secret. You may see pictures of my father with very long hair, as you saw in the interview with Carl Stern. The reason for that is that he hated to go to the barber. And the reason he hated to go was because it was a waste of time when he could be reading and writing. He didn't want to take the time to, yeah. And my mother would tell him, now you must. And his yarmulke would often fall down because his hair was so full. But what he hated was laziness, ignorance, and shallowness. He said, in the realm of theology, shallowness is treason. Let me, let me conclude by telling you how much it means to me to talk about my father. It means a lot to me. I want to tell you that I miss him very much, but he also comes to me in special moments. I can tell you that I am, of course, a daughter and not a son. It sometimes, I think, is difficult for my father's 
self-appointed disciples, <laughs> who are all men. But it also is true that I seek no Oedipal revenge against his patrimony. I have no anxiety of influence. I actually think in a different image. You know, at the moment of revelation at Mount Sinai, the rabbi said, what happened was that every soul of every Jew received a kiss from God. And that kiss became Torah. Torah comes as intimacy. It's a kiss turned into a word. And so I think that my father comes to life in the words that I tell about him. I would borrow a phrase from the scholar Maud Elman and just say that with all of the wonderful interest in my father's work, his books translated into languages from Urdu to Japanese and Korean and Spanish and Italian and everything. I sometimes think he hasn't really died, perhaps, but he's gone into diaspora from his body. He's still alive. He's a voice. He's inspiring us, not to imitation, because that would be spiritual plagiarism, but hopefully inspiring us to remind us of the extraordinary religious nobility that a human being can achieve. I want to end just by playing three minutes of his voice, if I may, for you. And that will be the last word. What I want to play for you is just, ah, oh, thank you. What I want to play for you is just see, three minutes at the end of a speech that my father gave. And he was actually together with Martin Luther King. And they were speaking at the Concord Hotel to a convention of the United Synagogue of America, the conservative movement organization. And they both gave the speeches. And at the end, very unusually, my father said that he wanted to say a few words in Yiddish. And I have an English translation for you uh, that you can follow as he speaks. I would like to spend the next three minutes by saying to you just a few words in Yiddish in honor of the Russian Jews, most of them still speak Yiddish. I'd like to say something about our situation in relation to what happened in our times in the early 40s. We feel ourselves an ambassador of culture, the sister of the Hebrew the founding speaker. We all are hardly strengthened in the block and the sunday, which are totally talking. We are very hardly part of the body. Not much great, the victim shedded. The tumult, the broken, the mystery of the spender. Of that, we are on the lady in Rodham McCoy. We are part of the hundred of the city of Hassan and the Spanish. Wenn der Licht dann auf dem Herzen, 
so incredibly powerful. So thank you. Thank you. We're going to take just 15 minutes for questions. Thank you. Uh, I want to thank you so much for this beautiful talk. You should know that your father has been quoted many, many, many times from that very microphone. As, uh, and as you, you couldn't possibly claim the intimacy and the closeness, but please know that we miss him too. Thank you. I want to ask, um, I'm not asking you to make a political statement, you can, but I'm not asking for that necessarily, but if your dad could uh, look around our world right now, which feels so broken, what would be the most urgent issue he would want to work on? And, sorry, if it's not fair to ask you to channel him, you as the carrier of his deepest Torah, what do you think? I'm very worried. Uh, I think that uh, there are many levels. My father would, I'm sure, talk about uh, our insensitivity about the suffering in the world we don't seem to respond to. And I'm sure he would talk about our need to be more engaged, more involved, to care for one another. I think he would be worried too that, you know, the idea of a state is something very new. We were emancipated as Jews with the French Revolution when there was an idea that instead of having individual groups with their own laws and privileges, clergy, nobility, peasants, Jews, we would have a state and we would all be equal. And I'm afraid that that very idea is coming under attack. It's disintegrating and that worries me terribly. It's what the prophets speak about, that we have obligations to one another, not just to ourselves, not just to our our class, or our tribe, or our religion, or, no. And that worries me. I, I, I see what goes on in places like Pakistan or Libya, and I worry that it could come here. It worries me that we have to bond together and be committed to live together and care for one another. Uh, I, I, I think that my father would worry about the state of our souls and the terrible problem of indifference mm -hmm. and unfairness, cruelty, and what it does to us too. We talked earlier about dignity, and in Judaism, dignity is on the one hand because we're created in God's image, but on the other hand, dignity is something that has to be conveyed. I become a person of dignity by granting dignity to others. My question also, by saying the father had a profound influence on me is uh, it was an example of social justice, civil rights, and shaping that thing. It reminded me of my idealized sense of what a Jew might be. Your father said uh, Hitler uh, came to power not with guns and tanks, but through the speaking of evil words. We are living in a time when, under the banner of nationalism, we are speaking evil words. We are escalating the divide between people. There is a manifestation of extremism, not only in this country, but all over the world, from Germany and Hungary and Turkey and Poland. And I wonder whether he would have said something about 
Israel as well, and his profound respect for Israel about nationalism and the evil words that might have been spoken by the Israeli government about Palestinian people and their pursuit of justice in this day and age. Thank you. So, uh, of course, my father felt very strongly that uh, a political conflict can be resolved. But when a political conflict turns into racism, then it becomes very hard. And yes, the conflict um, has become a racist, racist-informed and, and deformed conflict between Israeli Jews and Palestinians, between Israeli Jews and Israeli Arabs. It's not, I don't think it is a hopeless situation. I just went to a conference at Brown University that I found actually very uh, inspiring and gave me some hope, to be honest. So, uh, of course, he would be upset by any time there's both physical conflict and hateful words and attitudes, of course that would upset him. I think that there is this kind of tension within the Jewish world as well, and within every community I can think of right now. It's not only among Jews. It's in every country. People are at each other's throats. And Jews are too, and that's a terrible thing. Thank you so much. Um, with your father's um, perspective and background, living in Warsaw and living in Germany in 19... Uh, 28 to 1938, and then coming to America and then see what happened in the Holocaust. Did he write extensively about the Holocaust? Did he talk about where was God during the Holocaust? Did he go into that? That's always something that's been on my mind for many, many years. You know, the, one of the reasons I played that uh, Yiddish speech was very short but it was one of the few times that my father did talk about it. And notice what he said. He didn't say Holocaust. He said, what happened to us in the early 40s? Because it was very painful for him to talk about it. And the times when, he, very, very rare, when he said something to me, he was really broken. He really, he really couldn't. He was so upset. I think, though, I would say two things. I think one of the things that's striking is that my father always said Auschwitz and Hiroshima, when he spoke about the evils that our world has committed in this century, he said that over and over again. He said that philosophy and religious thought can't be the same. And when we speak words of theology, let's keep in mind Auschwitz and Hiroshima. Some Jews say just Auschwitz, but he always added Hiroshima. That's one thing. The other thing is that I think that it was in his mind, it was in his heart, in his soul, all the time. So when he became extremely upset about the My Lai massacre, about the atrocities in Vietnam, when he was passionate in speaking out against racism in this country, of course, all of that was there. It was, it was what happened, what the Nazis did. It was all there. He never would go back to Germany or Poland, and I felt very guilty myself when I went to Germany as a student to take a course in German. Uh, but I would say that it was uh, emotionally on the theological level, it's another issue. I think there he talked about what did we do as human beings, what kind of an image do we have of ourselves as people, how could someone do this to another, and so on. That was his primary approach, that it's not an issue of theodicy, it's an issue of anthropodicy. How can God have faith in us after what we do? This is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. 
At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.